You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings and the Hockey Podcast Network. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN at sign up for exclusive offers. Thank you so much for tuning into Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings here on the Hockey Podcast Network. My name is Connor Halley. I am the host of the Other Connor Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday and Friday. So pumped to be a part of the Dynasty by Decade series. And so far, not going to lie to you, it's been awesome. We started off in the 1960s discussing the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1970s, was the Montreal Canadiens, as well as the Philadelphia Flyers, and now we're on to the 1980s. Now, we've already heard the New York Islanders, and that was a pretty good run. Four straight cups, a lot of credit to the Islanders, but now it's my time to talk about the greatest hockey team of all time, the Edmonton Oilers in the 1980s, and the accomplishments, there's a few. I'm going to run through them right now for you. Seven times they were conference champions, twice winning the President's Trophy for the most points in the NHL. Paul Coffey by himself winning two Norris Awards as the best defenseman in the NHL. The team won six Ted Lindsay Awards. That's the most outstanding player voted by NHL players. Wayne Gretzky doing it five times, Mark Messier winning it once. In 1988, Grant Fear won the Vesna Trophy as the league's best goaltender. Nine times the team won the Hart Trophy. Wayne Gretzky doing it eight times, Mark Messier once. On four occasions, the Conn Smythe Trophy came to Edmonton. Wayne Gretzky doing it twice. Mark Messier and Bill Ranford once each. Seven times the Art Ross Trophy was in the City of Champions. Wayne Gretzky doing it on all those occasions, leading the league in points. All-Star games, there's just far too many to count. But the most important one there... Five Stanley Cups. They won five Stanley Cups in seven seasons, twice winning the trophy back-to-back. To be totally honest with you guys, I was born in 1987, so my chances to watch this team in person really weren't there. But that's why I'm going to bring on an all-star cast of people to discuss this team, and it's going to be absolutely awesome today. We're going to talk to a guy who grew up in the 80s and went on to play in the NHL, Jason Strudwick. He grew up a huge fan of the 80s Oilers and eventually went on to play for the Edmonton Oilers. So we're going to get his thoughts on what it was like to watch that team and you know just the effect that they had on his career, kind of pushing him to get into the NHL. We're also going to talk to Alan Mitchell. And of course, right now, you know him from his role on TSN 12. 60 Sports Radio in Edmonton. He also writes about the Oilers for The Athletic. In 1980, he was not yet in sports media. He was just a jock in a top 40 station. So we'll get Alan's thoughts on what it was like to be a fan of the Oilers because, hey, it would have been awesome. I mean, the confidence level going into every game, you would have been so excited to watch your team go out there all the time. So we'll talk to Alan about that. We're also going to talk to a Hockey Hall of Famer in his own right, Jim Matheson, longtime beat reporter for the Edmonton Oilers with Post Media and the Edmonton Journal. We'll get to the conversation, of course, but he told me he was writing 300 stories a year on the teams in the 1980s, so he's going to tell us a bunch of stuff, things you might not even know about right now. But I want to start things off with someone who played for the Oilers. In fact, 
over 450 games in the regular season, 130 more in the playoffs. His story to how he joined the Oilers is absolutely awesome. He won five Stanley Cups, represented Canada at the Olympics. An Edmonton legend, Dr. Randy Gregg, joins me now. Dr. Gregg, thank you so much for doing this today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you could do this. And uh, we're going to be hitting it from all perspectives. i got you, a former player. We've got some media. And uh, some guys in the NHL who grew up looking up this team as idols and even told me that, you know, your team was the reason they wanted to play hockey. That's just how good you guys were. And we'll get into to all the things that happened during that time frame. But you had a really cool journey getting to the Edmonton Oilers. You went from the University of Alberta. You went and played hockey in Japan for a couple of years. And then you joined the Oilers in the playoffs in 1980. 82, uh, a series they would lose to the Kings three games to two. But how did you go from playing in Japan, uh, then going to the Oilers and joining them in the playoffs? Well, it was a bit of an interesting story. When I was young, I was a big Oiler fan when they were playing in the World Hockey Association. And I realized I would never be good enough to play uh, in the NHL. Um, but fortunately, I was lucky enough to play with uh, Claire Drake uh, at the University of Alberta Golden Bears. And with the really good practice to game ratio there and the, the great leadership that Coach Drake gave us, uh, we all got to be a, you know, better players. In 1980, I had the opportunity to be the captain of the Olympic team that went to Lake Placid, New York, and I realized that, uh, you know, the, I, I still wasn't a very good athlete, but uh, I, I became a better uh, hockey defenseman because of all the, the things that Coach Drake showed us. Um, so rather than... Uh, trying to play professional at that time, I was really interested in staying amateur and going to another Olympics in 1984. So that was my reasoning to go to Tokyo, Japan. I spent a couple of uh, years there. I would spend about six months in Tokyo and then come back on a Friday, and on Monday I'd be doing my internship at the Royal Oak Hospital. So it allowed me to keep on with my academic studies as well. So that time frame worked quite well. Um, by the way, it was nice enough on the second second year I was in Tokyo, I got a call when I was actually in Sapporo waiting for a game, and it was a fellow named Glenn Sather who had come over with Peter Pockington to Tokyo and uh, phoned me up and said, we want to meet you. I said, well, Sapporo is about a two-hour flight from Tokyo, so we can't really meet, but, uh, you know, thanks for your interest, and when I get back to Edmonton after the season, we can talk. And sure enough, we had a chance to talk, and, you know, being an Oiler fan since I was a, a child, I was quite excited about the opportunity of not only playing in front of my friends and my family, but also representing Edmonton in the National Hockey League. Uh, uh, the first year was quite interesting, and you're absolutely right. I, I signed at the end of the J- Japanese season, and uh, Glenn Sather brought me into the Oiler uh, dress room and, and told the guys, said, look, he's, he's on our team, but he's not going to play this year. He's come from Japan. We're playing against L.A., so he's just going to practice. And I thought, well, that's really appropriate because you don't want to make any changes uh, early on, um, you know, just before you go on to, to the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, sure enough, the, the first game of the series, there was a, a defenseman on the team that had struggled a little bit. And so... Sather came over to me and said, Randy, you're playing next game. And I thought, ooh, that's kind of interesting. So it was quite unique going from a player who was not supposed to play any of those games to play the second game uh, in front of my friends and family. It ended up that the particular fellow that I replaced uh, became a a Hall of Famer, Paul Coffey. So, you know, uh, Paul was a a fabulous player. I had struggled a little bit early on, but... Of course, I could never replace him in the future. He was such a great player. Uh, it was interesting to be part of that miracle on Manchester when uh, Los Angeles came back from a 5 nothing deficit. And in fact, I spent 
uh, about 10 minutes uh, being the third and fourth man in with a fellow named Charlie Simmer, who was probably the nicest guy in the Los Angeles Kings. We kind of held each other watching this fight going on, and because we were holding each other, we were sent off for 10 minutes. And so I went into the penalty box at 5 nothing for the Oilers. That came out, it was 5-5, and that was the game they came back and scored the sixth goal to, to create that miracle in Manchester. But it was an interesting experience, and it was a start, I thought, um, you know, with my wife that we would play for a couple of years and get on to medicine, but it ended up in the second year we went to the Stanley Cup playoffs, and it was hard to turn my back on that team because we had such an amazing group of players. I mean, there was Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier and Glenn and Anderson and, and Kevin Lowe and all these guys, Grant Fuhr, some, some great talent, and so we thought, gee, you know what, this might be a team to stay with because uh, we, we could do some some interesting things in the future, and sure enough, that's what happened. Yeah, and I was looking at the roster that year in 1982 when you joined the team in the playoffs, and you had 20-year-old Wayne Gretzky, 20-year-old Messier, uh, Anderson and Coffey, both 20, Yari Curry's 21, Kevin Lowe, Charlie Huddy are 22, Grant Fear 18. You were the veteran at 25. I mean, when you walk into that room for the first time, did you know, you know just how hyped up this team was and the potential that was there? They were the veterans. Uh, Wayne may have been ninth at uh, 21, but he probably played four years in professional <laughs> hockey. I played in Tokyo, Japan, uh, for six months. So I was certainly—I uh, don't think I was intimidated, but I was certainly respectful of these players. Uh, uh, Mark was such a great leader, and even at 21, he, he dominated the the dressing room. He was the the, the leader vocally. Uh, Wayne was, of course, such a great leader because of. You know, such a gracious man he was, but also an amazing talent. So it was a unique combination of players in that dressing room. Um, you know, they needed the old slow defensemen. They needed the flamboyant goal scorers. They needed the great goaltenders like Grant Fear and, and Andy Mogan. Uh, you know, to, to give uh, the management credit, you know, they pulled people together. And I think Glenn Saylor said, look, we don't care if you ever score a goal. We don't need more more goal scorers. We need somebody to get the puck up to those great players. And so, I, you know, I had a small part to fill on that team and was happy to do so. So two years, uh, two-year commitment ended up being nine or ten years because we kept on winning those Stanley Cups. How how early on in your time with the Oilers did you think that you know winning Stanley Cups is a real possibility? I mean, I know you went to the final in 1993. Uh, the Islanders were victorious in that one, but was it was it pretty evident that this team could win multiple Stanley Cups? You know, it's interesting when you look around and see the type of player we had. It, it was not abnormal for Wayne to do something on the ice, and you look him in the face, and he'd sort of say, "How did I do that?" And even he astounded himself with his amazing talent. So, um, you know, much like we see with Conor McDavid right now, you know, the, they're generational players who bring to the table things that none of us could even dream about. And when you get leadership like that, and, and what an amazing talent. But, you know, I put Mark Messier right up uh, alongside him because, uh, you know, Mark was such a dominant leader. He, he demanded excellence of himself and the people around him. And, you know, he respected the best players and the worst players, the most important and the least important. And I think we all realize that as much as I had a great experience with the U of A Golden Bears and learning what it's like to be part of a team, you know, those two really brought those players together. And I don't think that will ever be it will never be replicated because uh, nowadays with all the money involved and the free agency and things like that, of course all the players want to win the Stanley Cup. They, those rings are hard to come by. But there was a, a really fabulous moment when I can remember one time when 
when Mark, you know, used to lament on the 15th and the 1st of every month because they'd give out the paychecks and he'd say, oh, shoot, I got to go to the bank. Now, you know, he went to the bank because it was a fair bit of money back then, but I'm sure he would have played for no money at all just because he wanted to win. He was from St. Albert, so, of course, the two of us and Grant from Spruce Grove, you know, it was so fabulous to be able to be out there in front of our friends and family. I'm not sure I would have lasted in New York or Calgary or anything like that, but imagine winning the Stanley Cup and having your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters in the, the dressing room. I mean, there's so many advantages to be a homegrown player. As poor as I was a, as a player, you know, those were, were great experiences for sure. Oh, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short here, Dr. Greg. So, 1983, you guys would lose in the Stanley Cup Finals to the New York Islanders. Obviously, they had a little bit of a dynasty themselves, but then you go and win two straight. You win another one in 1987, 1988, 1990. We hear a lot of stories. Maybe it's old wives' tales about that loss to the Islanders in 83, where, I mean, the, the one story is you guys walk past their dressing room after, and they're all kind of just sitting there worn down. Was there a turning point or a lesson learned in that series that maybe propelled you guys to become as good as you did become as a team overall? Absolutely. You know, I think most athletes will tell you that you have to lose to be able to become a winner. And uh, that year, I think Wayne probably scored with 212 points or things like that. He was just amazing. And we were uh, a team of some great players and some good role models. Um, But we weren't a team. And uh, at the end of that game, although you're absolutely right, walking by in the bowels of the Nassau County Coliseum, you could see those old New York Islanders, and they just gave it everything. But they gave it everything as a united group. And I think that's why they beat us four games to nothing. At the end of that series, uh, two things that happened that really changed the focus of the Edmonton Oilers. The first thing was uh, Ted Green, who uh, you know had a major head injury from playing hockey, a, a great leader, not an eloquent speaker, but he spoke from the heart, came up and he told us, basically, if you want to win the Stanley Cup, you better forget about what's important for you and remember what's important for the team. The other thing that was quite interesting, I was a rookie that year, and the only other rookie was a fellow named Yaroslav Pozar. Now, Yaroslav was 32 at the time. He was no rookie playing in the World Championships for Czechoslovakia and, and in Olympic Games. And Pozar, in fact, I, I take pride in, in knowing that I was the one who taught him English because we were roommates. And he didn't speak very good English, so I didn't do a very good job that way. Uh, but he got up, and, and the fellows respected Yaroslav because he'd been there at different international events. And Pozar just he put it on the line. He said, guys, you've got to forget about all your personal accolades and you've got to play as a team. And uh, if your goal is to win the Stanley Cup, now our goals these days sometimes are making $12 million or making the 100 goals or 100 points, whatever it may be. But back then, uh, you know, Wayne had won the scoring championship, and Mark was a fabulous player. Everybody knew that. The one thing they didn't have was that Stanley Cup ring. So the next year was quite amazing because instead of trying to, you know, thread the puck through six defenders to get somebody for a breakaway, uh, you know, they were back in our corner. The, the breakaways became easy because they realized that that commitment was there. You know, none of us in, in the back end, you know, Kevin was a great, great player. Lee Foglin was a great leader. Paul was, of course, a generational defenseman. 
But I think all of us realize that with the help that the forwards gave us to not only play good offense, but also play good uh, defense, and with the leadership we had from John Muckler, you know, not many people realize that, that you know, Glenn Sather was a great strategist and a great uh, motivator, uh, but John Muckler was, he was the hockey man. He came with the details. He showed us how to play a, a good transitional game that back then was not really seen too much. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers changed the, the face of hockey, I think, because we had the skill, the speed, and this transitional game really uh, transformed the old Boston Bruins dump it in and go and chase and bang the crap out of them and win it in the corner to now you win it because you have the puck more than they do. Uh, Dr. Greg, so you guys win two straight Stanley Cups, 1984 and 1985. In 1986, uh, there's the Steve Smith incident. I think everyone's pretty well aware of that. Going into the 1986-1987 season, uh, was there any motivation to try to win one for Steve after all the way that played out? And I mean, like, just how motivated was the team? I mean, you've won it two straight years, then you fall off with an unfortunate play. Was there a, an enhanced uh, level of motivation when it came to getting back to where you previously were? Well, I, I think that that's a natural tendency to say it was a Steve Smith play, but uh, and it was a dumb play. I mean, Steve should know better, and he should have gone around the boards, not in front. And, and if he did it another 100 times, he'd do it the right way 100 times. But the fact is we didn't score enough goals, and we had 59 other minutes to be able to beat the Calgary team. So, you know, Calgary worked hard, and, and they deserved that that victory and you know kudos to them um, but you know I, I don't think we had more motivation we just had motivation all the time we expected to win every game and uh, you know it was through the leadership of, of Mark and, and Wayne uh, more passively Wayne Mark would be in our face and say guys we have to win and, and you know then all of a sudden when you expect that you, you realize that we're not going out there for a paycheck we're going out there to win the game, to be able to win another Stanley Cup for our city. And uh, so it was interesting because at the end of my career, I went to Vancouver. And uh, uh, the one of the reasons why I went there was their head coach, Pat Quinn, just a fabulous man. And at the first uh, meeting, uh, Pat came, got all the players together and, and said, fellas, I, I think, you know, our goal should be to get to the, the playoffs. And I was going to stand up and say, no, Pat, of course it's not. Our goal is to win the Stanley Cup. Because that's all I knew with the Edmonton Oilers. We, we didn't want to make the playoffs. We wanted this to win. But, in fact, Pat was a lot smarter than I was, and he realized that the Vancouver Canucks were not ready to, to establish that goal. And sure enough, we made the playoffs that year, went a little bit in the playoffs, and the next year they went to the Stanley Cup Finals. So, you know, Pat was a, was a visionary. He realized that there were certain steps to be made. But here I was just saying, no, 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 we're going to win every game and we're going to win every Stanley Cup. And, and that was a beautiful environment because there was no halfway. We, if, we, if we got 70% in a test, we won 90%. And, uh, yeah, so the same thing. You know, I think it bode us all well in the future. You know, I don't want to see 30 patients today and have 22 of them get better. You know, I want all of them to get better. And sure, there's challenges and, and stresses to, to be able to be the best you can be. But, you know, I think our, our experience with the Oilers of the 80s allowed us to demand excellence from, from not only us, but people around us as well. When you look back at the dynasty and, you know, the players, obviously, there's a lot that stand out. The Hall of Famers, Gretzky, Messier, Coffey, uh, Grant Fear, Yari Curry, like Kevin Lowe, just guys who are icons in this city. But can you think back to any of the teammates that maybe were a little bit underrated in that time or overshadowed by some of the bigger names? 
You know, I, th- I think the fellows that were overshadowed were just happy to be that way. You know, we think of Lee Fogland, who was just a rock-solid defenseman, a great leader, but probably wouldn't say two words in the dressing room. Didn't have to because he led by example. One of the fellows that I look back on so fondly was a young fellow named Adam Graves. And Adam came uh, to us in, in 1990, the trade, um, you know, with Detroit. And... Uh, and he kept on telling me every time we, we went to practice together that he lived 45 seconds from my dinner table. You know, I'd come home after practice and often uh, would look, and Adam would be up in the playroom with my two young boys playing with him. He was maybe the finest man I've ever met, and uh, and what a, a leader. I, at the end of my career, you know, I'd had four Stanley Cups, and, and, and sure, of course, we get greedy and want to have another one, but the fifth Stanley Cup for me, the pleasure was not in getting another Stanley Cup ring. It was to share that experience with Adam. Um, you know, he, he showed me a lot about dedication and commitment, and I eventually was traded away from the Oilers and scored 50 goals you know, with the New York Rangers, and, and for good reason, because uh, not only was he a, a good player, but just such a dynamic influence. And even as a 21-year-old, uh, a lot of our older guys looked up to him. So it's credit to him for sure, and I'm sure he's doing very well in New York because he's just that kind of person. So here you've got a fellow who just comes to the team the first year and uh, becomes a, a dominant addition to a team that uh, you know had some great players over the years. Uh, Dr. Greg, just a couple more questions for you. I really appreciate you doing this today. Uh, I just want to ask, what was it like playing for the Oilers in the 80s? And I mean, you're from the area, so you obviously know what it's, uh, how popular Oilers are right now, Raven. I mean, if you were to see Connor McDavid on the street today, I'm sure he'd be just uh, <laughs> swarmed by fans for pictures and autographs, things like that. Was it like that for you in the 80s? Did you have people wanting autographs to get pictures with you if they could, things like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, you know, it was a popular team. There's no question about that. And although, you know, some of us had some uh, exposure to that and then, you know, multiply that by 500, then you get to be Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> so we should never complain about that notoriety. Uh, but a couple of points. Uh, first of all, it was difficult uh, um, to, to augment my medical career with that because, you know, when I did go into the hospital, I was spending more time signing autographs than I was learning about medicine. So, unfortunately, I had to kind of put my medical training on hold there for a period of time. And, uh, you know, I can remember going to Kingsway Garden Mall of Zellers to buy some diapers for my my young uh, children. And uh, the lady would say, well, why are you why are you shopping here? You know, you're an Edmonton author. And I thought, well, you know, the Zellers diapers are just as good as anywhere else and have to be close by so the expectation of doing things as a celebrity was not something i really enjoyed because you know i was from edmonton i was going to live in edmonton for the rest of my life so that part wasn't an easy one uh, but you know we have to be very respectful of, of the fact that, that the fans really supported us through those years and one of the amazing experiences is you know you win the stanley cup uh, on the ice and, and your your teammates are there and you can look up and there's your mother and father and your two brothers and your three sisters and you know it just doesn't get any better than that I would have never lasted as long because I, I was excited about getting on with my medical career but to be able to share those experiences with family and then my close friends I mean it just doesn't get better than that my final question for you uh, obviously the championships I'm sure there's a lot of great memories that go along with them does one of the championships stand out your first your last like you said winning one for Adam Graves and um, you know off the ice memories with the team anything that really stood out to you Oh, boy, after five of them, there certainly are a lot. But uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story because, uh, 
you know, a Stanley Cup ring is just a piece of metal. And uh, although we're, we're really proud of it, you know, we didn't cure cancer and we didn't, uh, you know, fight global warming. We just, we just won the hockey games and we were just a group that got together and did something special for the fans. But it is still a hockey game. Um, when my boys were about six and five, um, we used to have a basement that wasn't finished. So we'd go down and play floor hockey. And, uh, so one particular day, uh, my son Jamie, he was six, he said, Dad, I want to be Marc Messier. And I didn't even realize he knew who Marc Messier was. And uh, my younger son, uh, Ryan, who was five, he said, Dad, I want to be Jeff Bookaboom. And again, he didn't know who Jeff Bookaboom was, like the name. And then they both looked at me and said, Dad, who do you want to be? And, uh, and I kind of liked that because, uh, you know, there were, I wanted my children to grow up as children and not somebody's child. And uh, even though it was in the middle of the 80s and, and you know, we were very, very popular, my wife did a great job to kind of shield my children from ended up being somebody's child. I wanted them to have their own life and their own uh, education and so forth. So as much as we were very proud of what we did as a hockey team, I'm also very proud that, you know, I don't walk around saying I'm Randy Gregg of the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, you know, it's it a time in our lives that's important, but, you know, our lives go on and we have to do important things in our life. And to be honest with you, I'm just as proud when, you know, maybe we can help somebody with their, their medical illness or their injury uh, as I was winning a hockey game. So, you know, life is good. Well, Dr. Greg, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it and uh, great stories. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. You have a good day. You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Use promo code THPN at sign-up for exclusive offers. Absolutely awesome conversation with Dr. Randy Gregg here on the Dynasty by Decade podcast series brought to you by DraftKings. A reminder, when you sign up, make sure to use promo code THPN. I highly recommend you do so. You'll have a lot of fun and hopefully win a lot of money. That's DraftKings promo code THPN. It stands for the Hockey Podcast Network. We're going to continue the discussion here about the 1980s Oilers, the greatest dynasty, in my opinion, winning five Stanley Cups. And we're going to talk to somebody who's been there since the very beginning, Jim Matheson, this team when they were in the WHA. He stuck with them when they crossed over into the NHL. He's a Hockey Hall of Famer himself. Jim, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. I'm only a Hall of Famer because I got lucky enough to cover <laughs> maybe the greatest team ever. I was just got dropped into the uh, into the uh, uh, the water, and it was uh, wasn't the deep end. It was uh, it was the shallow end because they were winning lots of cups. <laughs> well, don't sell yourself short. I I was actually just looking at your Hall of Fame profile, and they said you know during the runs, and I mean probably still now, you were doing up to three hundred articles during a season. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. Well, you know what? When they're winning, everybody wanted to read about the team. You know. In the business I'm in and you're in, the more successful the team is, everybody wants to hear about every player on the team and whatever. When they're not successful, then there's a lot, a little less work to do and a lot more grumbling from the fans, but uh, it's a little less work to do. <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right about that. So I want to talk about, you know, we'll start off when the Oilers get into the NHL, and I know you cover them with the WHA, but first year in the NHL, the Edmonton Oilers have an 18-year-old Wayne Gretzky, an 18-year-old Mark Messier, and a 20-year-old Kevin Lowe. Year two, 
A 20-year-old Yari Curry joins the team, as well as a 19-year-old Glenn Anderson. And then they're only their third year in the NHL. They get a 20-year-old Paul Coffey, an 18-year-old Grant Fear, and then the next year they make it to the Stanley Cup Final. Those first three years, how fun was it covering the team and just seeing what they were building? Well, I, I think a lot of it goes to Barry Fraser, the chief scout, because he drafted all the players, and you know, apart from Gretzky. Um, and they did, you know, Kevin Lowe was like, like the last player picked in the first round of the draft. So he wasn't like the Connor McDavid, the first. So they didn't draft very well, but they were all the same age. And that made it more enjoyable to cover because I think you you always knew as a as a media person that that you were seeing a lot of really good players all the same age and it wasn't like you had a couple of 30 year olds and a couple of 20 year olds and you know eventually the 30 year olds would be gone and they wouldn't have the depth but all the good players were the same age and you know, there weren't a lot of, let's put it this way, there weren't a lot of support players there. They were all stars. So any team with stars and a number of them was going to win. And, you know, I, I, the teams that win, too, are usually the most accommodating to, to cover as for, for a media person. And, you know, they're winning and they're successful and, and they had lots to say. And, you know, Wayne Gretzky was, was much like Connor McDavid, in his early NHL days, he didn't say very much. He was pretty quiet, and he just, you know, the old cliche that this, you know, his talking came from what he did on the ice. And but Messier was was very talkative, and Kevin Lowe for sure was very talkative. And Paul Coffey was outgoing, and and so they had lots of lots of players who had lots to say, and they backed it up by how they played on the ice. So it was very enjoyable, not just for me, but it was very enjoyable for visiting team now the first three as well oh okay well for the first three years uh like i said didn't quite uh do too well in the playoffs obviously uh, a couple first round exits and a second round but then that fourth year they make the jump to the to the finals where they lose to the islanders and i mean that's pretty well documented that that's kind of where they they realized how much they had to do and there's from the islanders side kind of like okay there's this new team coming up and they might be something to reckon with going forward heading into the 1983-1984 season coming Coming off a loss in the Stanley Cup final, was it almost you know expected that they'd get back to the final and, and take that jump and win their first Stanley Cup? Um, I wouldn't know if it was expected, but I I think the Islanders. I think you know a lot of us realized that the Islanders when they didn't win the Cup in '83 that was might be their last hurrah. They were pretty beat up and they'd been very successful for a long time, and the owners were a younger team. And I think, you know, it's the age-old story. You know, once you lose and you to a, the champions, you realize what it takes. And I think the orders had, I don't know if it was something to prove in 84, but I think they took the lessons they learned from the sweep in 83 um, by the Islanders to heart. And, you know, they I don't know if they dedicated the 83-84 season to to winning the cup but I think they realized that much like Tampa is realizing today that all the scoring in the world isn't isn't going to win you know she can't stop pucks from going into your own net and I think the orders were were better defensively um 
in you know starting in 84 and and carrying on from there so yeah so i think they did learn the lesson from the islanders and that's usually the way it is when you lose to the champions that's a better lesson than than losing to some other team that just somehow got to the finals these are the champions and they were champions for a reason and the owners kevin lowe's and the messiers and the and the wayne gretzky's all looked at, at the islander players the trotches the bossies the billy smiths that any pot vans is models for them you know from afar and they realized that they had to start playing as well as they did in the playoffs and it carried forward from there on two occasions the oilers won back-to-back stanley cups in fact they won four in five years which is quite the accomplishment in itself but when you look at, on the years where they're coming off a stanley cup championship did they have a target on their back did did they always get the other team's best effort they got Calgary's best effort, for sure. <laughs> um, they were the two, the Oilers and Calgary were the two best teams in the league. They happened to play in the same smite division. So Calgary, you know, they got, you know, in 86, you know, obviously Steve Smith scored on Grant Fear, you know, from behind the net, and it got Calgary to win over the Oilers. But for the most part, um, the Oilers had a target on their back, but it was the target on their back wasn't some team from down east. The target on their back was a team three hours away down the road. And the Oilers, I think, had to make sure that they stayed as, as good as they did to, just to beat Calgary. And Calgary built a team through, you know, college free agents and 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 stuff and and they became every bit as good as the Oilers, I think. And you know, if you're a Calgary Flame fan, every morning you woke up banging your head against the wall because you kept losing to the Oilers, apart from eighty six there. Um but you know, the Oilers I think the Oilers became uh, playoff hardened because they had to play Calgary before they even got to the third round of the fourth round. We are joined by Hockey Hall of Fame sports writer Jim Matheson covered the Edmonton Oilers during their dynasty continues to to this day and Jim I've got to ask about the head coach throughout that run, Glenn Saylor. Everyone knows how good he was, you know, obviously great with talents. But when it comes to just, you know, dealing with the players, and obviously, like I said, they've had seven Hockey Hall of Famers. There's got to be a little bit of ego, maybe not as much in other sports, but how good of a job did he do just keeping everyone happy with their roles? I thought he did a great job. I think he was a he was the psychologist as the coach. John Muckler was the X's and O's guy, and I think Glenn knew which buttons to push. I think he, in a lot of ways, he became coach father figure, and the players didn't want to let him down, like you know, like a son and a father by doing you know stuff that you know they shouldn't do. And but he pushed all the right buttons, and you know he would he would lean on Paul Coffey. Um, you know, he benched, you know, that's, you know, as we all know, he benched um, Wayne Gretzky for a period and he came back and scored three goals in the third period because he didn't think Wayne was playing good. Um, I think his greatest strength, Glenn, was that he knew he was not a very good player. You know, he, he had, you know, a 10-year career but didn't score very many goals. And he realized but he had played in in montreal with really good players and he realized what made 
the Larry Robinsons of the world and stuff in, in Montreal tick and and he took those lessons and, and applied them to the young players in Edmonton. When you look back at that team during the 1980s, is there anyone that stands out to you as maybe uh, flying under the radar, kind of underrated, and maybe didn't get the credit they quite deserve because they weren't uh, a Gretzky or a Messier? Charlie Hetty, I would say, on defense, who played with Paul Coffey. Uh, Coffey got all the honors, you know, rightfully so, breaking Bobby Orr's single-season you know, goal record and winning you know, a couple of Norris trophies and... and Probably should have won more than the two he did win. Uh, Rod Langley won a couple. Maybe Paul could have won. Uh, but Charlie was the was the security blanket for Paul. Paul could go up the ice, and Charlie would cover for him. And uh, you know, we all talk about plus minus now, and how it doesn't really matter as much as as zone entries and and you know um, defensive faceoffs and shit like that, stuff like that. But. One, I think he was plus 76 one year, Charlie Huddy, so uh, back in the day. So I, I, if any player that I think was underrated would be Charlie Huddy. Now, the final Stanley Cup that they did win in 1990, to me, that that is very impressive. Obviously, the year before, they were eliminated in the first round without Wayne Gretzky, uh, John Muckler taking over as the head coach. Did you think that team was just motivated, obviously not having Gretzky, not having Saylor to prove that they could still go out there and be the best? team in the league um they will say no that you know they wanted to prove that they could win without wayne but i think in their heart of hearts um while they would love to have had wayne on their team i think there was a certain um satisfaction i guess after winning a stanley cup without wayne um but they still had we failed to sometimes to realize they still had you know Gary Curry, Glenn Anderson, Mark Messier, Kevin Lowe you know they still had a core of great players that were going to the Hall of Fame so while they didn't have Wayne Gretzky um, they still had Mark Messier who's you know on everybody's list of the top 10 players of all time so I think they had enough to to win without Wayne and when they did win without Wayne I think there was there was a little bit of sadness that Wayne, you know part of the family wasn't there to help them win but on the, the flip side it kind of solidified the fact that the orders as a team um, it was the old some of the parts were you know sufficed to win without Wayne Gretzky and it was it was the most amazing one I think when they won without without Wayne to you know just to show that they could do it and then you know they didn't have Grant Fear and Goal either they'd Bill Ranford so um, it was somewhat different I want to ask you about Grant Fear uh, unfortunately I didn't really get a chance to see him live uh, just kind of missed out on that part but you know you see the high scoring games and, and everything like that what was it like having Grant Fear in the net because you hear the stories about when he needed to be on and make that save he did it yeah, Grant never cared much about uh, save percentage, which is what we all care about now. You look at a goaltender, and it's not goals against, it's his save percentage. And Grant didn't really care about save percentage or goal average. It was only if he won the game, and if he gave up five and the order scored six, fine. He was a situational goaltender. Um, he might give up a goal early in a hockey game, and but 
late in the hockey game, if you're protecting a one-goal lead, there's a pretty good chance he wasn't giving up a goal to uh, to allow the opposing team to tie the game and get it to overtime. So that, I mean, that was his greatest strength. And I think in a lot of ways, Grant was the Oilers' Patrick Waugh or Marty Brodeur. They knew that Grant was better than the goalie in the other net. And that was, a, you know, a comforting feeling if you're a hockey player too. That going into the hockey game against a really good team, you 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 had the feeling that Grant was better than the other goalie, and you were going to win the game. For the most part, you know, Grant made the saves, and what made Grant as great as he was, he never once, that I can recall, ever called out a defenseman, you know, for getting in his way so he could he couldn't see the shot, or if he, you know he gave up a bat, he gave up a goal, it was always his fault. And he, he said that over and over and over in addressing him. I should have made that save. And you'd say, Grant, it was a four-on-one <laughs> break. <laughs> I couldn't even make that save. But he always figured it was his fault. And, and I think that carried over to the players, too. There was no, never any finger-pointing from Grant uh, that somebody, somebody caused him to give up, give up the goal. Oh, that's, that's absolutely awesome to hear. And that just kind of sounds like the ideal goaltender. That's what you want to hear as a forward or a defenseman. The goalie can take the blame. Uh, he'll move on and try to get the next one for him. Uh, Jim, really appreciate this today. Just okay. one final question for yeah. you. Uh, looking back, you covered the team throughout the 80s and obviously the Cup win in 90. Is there a favorite memory for you that stands out? Um, that's a good question. I Probably... Well, in 90, when Peter Klima scored the goal in the triple overtime for the owners to beat Boston in Boston, um, that game just went on and on and on and on and on and went on forever. I thought it might go five or six overtimes because it didn't seem like anybody was going to score. But probably the Gretzky goal uh, on Mike Vernon uh, in 88, where he hammered it coming off the wing. I think Wayne has said that's maybe the greatest goal he ever scored. And I, you know, I would say that's probably my favorite memory. The memories you have as a sports writer tend to gravitate more to the playoffs than regular season. Um, but the, my favorite game was probably when Wayne scored the five goals and to get the 50 goals in 39 games. And, uh, you know, could have had seven or eight goals that game. If you talk to Pete Peters, who was the goaltender for Philadelphia that night, that was just an amazing game, and you just were mesmerized that Wayne had the puck all game. And, Jim, I, I realize that's a bit of a tough question, obviously, about 800 games plus the playoff runs. I'm sure you have your fair share of good memories and even the bad memories as well. The bad memories, Connor, are the ones where you have your game story already written, and then and then there's a goal late in the game, usually by the owners or the opposing team, which makes the game go to overtime and you have your story already written and then you've got to go another two hours waiting for the game to end. So those those are the ones that the writer you tend to remember too because you're on deadline. Well, we've got uh, Randy Gregg coming up later on in the podcast and he, he told me a story about mir- the miracle in Manchester and he was oh, in the penalty was, box yeah, for all the goals. Was, I remember Jerry Buss, the owner of LA, left after the second period because we could they had the press box in the seats at the forum in LA and you could see he was the owner and you could see the owner he'd sit behind the uh, the uh, the bench and he got up and left after the it was second period the owners were up five nothing so not not a lot of faith from the LA Kings owner but uh, there was a lot of faith obviously in the Kings because they came back and won the game 6-5 that was the most amazing game ever I ever covered Absolutely awesome. Jim, thanks so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. uh, My pleasure, Connor. 
You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings. Use promo code THPN for sign-up bonuses and weekly deals. DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Absolutely awesome conversation with longtime Edmonton Oilers beat reporter Jim Matheson. He works with Post Media and the Edmonton Journal, and we really appreciate him hopping on the show today. It's the Dynasty by Decade series. Brought to you by DraftKings, my name is Connor Halley, and if you skipped my little rant at the beginning, once again, I'm just going to say it, I was born in 1987, I missed out on the good times with the Edmonton Oilers, so that's why I've tried to assemble this awesome crew of players and analysts just to talk about their experiences with the team, and it's going to continue on here. I've got two more guests for you. We're going to talk to Alan Mitchell later on in the podcast, and you know, if you follow the Edmonton Oilers right now, I'm sure you know him. The Lowdown with Low Tide on TSN 1260. He, of course, also writes at The Athletic. We'll get to Al later on, because in the 1980s, he was not quite in the sports scene yet. He was still a fan. So we're going to find out what it was like to be a fan in the 1980s, I'm sure Al had a lot of good times, a lot of celebrations. I am old enough to remember the 2006 Cup run. The Edmonton Oilers did not win the Stanley Cup there. So if it's anything like that, and I assume it was like that multiplied by about 10, there's probably a lot of good stories to come from Alan Mitchell. That's coming up later on here as we discuss the 1980s Edmonton Oilers dynasty. It's the Dynasty by Decade series brought to you by DraftKings. And as I always tell you, sign up. And use promo code THPN. Right now, I want to bring someone in who played in the NHL, not in the 80s, but a little bit later. He grew up in the city of champions during the 80s, watched these Edmonton Oilers teams play. And if you ask him, he might even tell you it really helped him getting into the NHL because they made him fall in love with the game. He's someone I work with on TSN 1260. One of the best people out there, Jason Strudwick, former NHLer. Jason, thanks so much for doing this today. I really do appreciate it. Now, when you look back at this team, I'm sure there's tons of memories, but do you have kind of that first memory that merely made you fall in love with this team and the game of hockey? Well, they're, they're the group of players that made me fall in love with hockey. You know, it was uh, so exciting. Um, you know, I kind of, I, when they, they won their first Stanley Cup, I think I was eight or nine. So I was just really kind of coming online to understanding what sports is all about. Um, you know, we used to play outside street hockey, you know, a ton. And, you know, we were either Gretzky or Messier or, you know, a couple guys were Curry or Anderson, whatever, right? Like everyone, every, Paul Coffey, Andy Moog, all these guys, right? And, and, and that's what, you know, when you get a chance to see your team in, in regular season, it's pretty cool, you know, and they have some great moments. But when they get into the playoffs and have what, do well in the playoffs and you see guys win Stanley Cup and hold it above their their heads like you know then you got Glenn Sather such a character and and all these guys uh, right down to the you know the the, the, the guy who played a couple games during the, during the playoffs it was so special just to just to see that and they're they're the reason I fell in love with hockey so when you are playing hockey obviously you go play for KC uh, as as the legend grows uh, you are pretty dominant for them like are you guys out there trying to emulate Gretzky or trying to emulate Paul Coffey going coast to coast was is those are those the guys you looked up to and thought man if I could play like them that'd be pretty cool yeah, you know, maybe I should have done that more often, but I, <laughs> I, I kind of gravitated towards more of the guys that are a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit more heavy-handed, you know, a little grittier, maybe. Uh, you know, I, I like Dave Semenko. I wasn't even close to as tough as him, um, but um, you know, or a guy like you know Dave Hunter, that was kind of just a a good two-way player, or, or you know Charlie Huddy, all these guys that I, 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 mean, I, I guess maybe, I, maybe I on some level I recognized I wasn't that gifted offensively, and I had to do that, but I also that. 
that's kind of how I, I like to play. I liked being, uh, you know, uh, a guy who kind of shut down someone else and made them have a bad day. So that was kind of what I gravitated towards. But, I mean, yeah, when I was playing road hockey, I would always say Messier or Gretzky scores, right? It wasn't a lot of, you know, Yaroslav Pozar scores and nothing against Yaroslav. But, you know, that's, that's kind of how it went. So who was your guy? Like who stood out uh, above the rest? Messier. I love Messier because he could play it any way he wanted. You wanted to play a, a skill game? Yep, no problem. We can do that. If you want to take it into the uh, gutter? Yep, he felt very comfortable in that world too. And, you know, I definitely got the, the gutter part. I didn't get the skilled part as much. Um, but that that's who I liked. And, you know, I loved his helmet, the way he skated, um, you know, even his, his shots off, uh, off the off wing going far side. Like all those things are just, they're such good memories. And obviously when you're younger, they're kind of built up, you know, and now that I'm little older i'm not jaded but you know you're it, it's cool to see like what Braden points doing but you don't get the quite quite the same level of excitement my kids they think it's amazing what points done or or the way headman plays or you know the way mark andre fleury plays so it's different through the lens of a child but it's it, it is sure special my god so I, I I try to like put this in perspective for that kids might have grown up in the two thousands. Like if you were a New England Patriots fan, all you knew was winning. That's all they did in that decade. The Oilers win five Stanley Cups in four years. I mean, w- as a fan, being a young kid, was it just like that's the expectations? The Oilers are just going to win cups forever. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> that's a good point. So you're you're kind of you know you don't you don't understand how hard it is to win. And I, I think when I I made it to the NHL, I understood how hard it was. Even you know when I I left high school and I went to play junior for two years and I won the Memorial Cup two times. You know, and you think, oh, it's not that hard to win. You know, I'm a, I'm a winner. And then after that, I I think yeah, I don't know if I won two or three playoff rounds the rest of my career. <laughs> so I mean, maybe I wasn't a winner. Maybe I was just in the right place at the right time. But you for sure, you for sure kind of get. Um, you know, you think, oh, it's going to last forever. And when, when Gretzky got traded, uh, I remember exactly. I was washing my mom's Aerostar Ford van, Ford Aerostar van. And I heard it on the radio, and I'm like, it's not true. I told my buddy, my buddy Brendan, it's not true. It's not true. Well, it was true. And I was 13 years old, and I cried, you know, it's just because he knew it was over. And then, but he still had Messier. Then he came back and led the guys back to another championship. And I think that was just amazing as well. So, Stratty, when you became a professional hockey player, I mean, did, did your respect just grow for what that group was able to do, learning how tough it was to win and, you know, doing it at, at a level where, you know, the drop-off in talent isn't that big. Like, everyone in the NHL is a hell of a hockey player. They were able to win four cups in five years. Uh, just getting into the NHL and seeing how tough it was, I have to assume your, your respect and admiration for what they were able to do just grew. Oh, for sure. I mean, you, you just, you know, trying to win a cup back to back is, oh, sorry, trying to win a cup is, you know, nearly impossible. Um, so many things have to go right. First off, you have to be, you know, build, build a winner. Uh, then you got to build a, um, you know, a team that, that, that can compete in the playoffs. You got to get lucky. Um, as far as people staying healthy, um, you know, maybe a couple bounces, whether they're self-created or you, you know, create them um, by just by just by being the right place at the right time. But it all adds up, and then to do it year after year after year, knowing how hard it is to win, um, and understanding the sacrifice you have to do in the off season, you know, and then even the sacrifice you make in September, October, November, December, all leading up to what is ultimately, hopefully, going to be hoisting a cup in June. I, like I said, I I, I made this second round one time, and I was an extra player so I wasn't even playing and I was tired I'm like this is crazy I couldn't imagine going four rounds 
Strutty, 98-99, uh, that's kind of when you make your big jump into the NHL, playing in 65 games for the Vancouver Canucks. Do you have any memories of going up against guys that you grew up watching on that Oilers team? Well, the first guy I played against that was on that team was Charlie Huddy, and it was in the minors. I think he was in Rochester, if I remember correctly. And I remember I couldn't believe it. I just stared at him like, oh, my God, it's Charlie Huddy. Like, <laughs> Charlie Huddy of all the people. Like, he was, you know, he, he, I, he was such a calming influence on that blue line for the Oilers, um, you know, playing with Paul Coffey. And then, I you know, I ended up playing with uh, Mark Messier, which was just mind-blowing uh, the first time I met him and then got to kind of talk to him and see the way he treats people and the way, he, you know, he treated the game and interacted with his teammates. And then uh, one time I played against Wayne Gretzky, and he did score against me. He could make the case probably that it was my fault. But, uh, you know, either way, it was just, you know, to see those guys and to play alongside them. And now, you know, I count them, you know, I, when I see them at events, uh, they'll say hello to me, like Paul Coffey or uh, Glenn Anderson. Not to name drop, you know, everyone watch your toes. But, you know, I, I get to see these guys and, and talk to them and, um, you know, and just kind of pick their brain. And just it's, 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 it's interesting because I'm a peer, but I'm also a fan. You know, I think it's a it kind of a sweet spot there. And at different times, you know, when I played, I was like, okay, hey, it's game time. I'm going to play. But, you know, when you're around them, then you get to talk to them, kind of debrief them on what they've done or accomplished. And especially when I was still playing, you know, you always wanted to hear what their thoughts. I remember I met Dave Brown. Um, he was a scout for the Rangers. And this guy, I mean, I was playing, and he still looked like he was, you know, ready to just to tear someone in half. I'm like, holy jeez. Dave Semenko, same thing. He'd walk into the dressing room like, oh, my God, that's Dave Semenko. Like, he's, you know, and all the Euros didn't maybe know him, but I did. I thought he was just amazing. Well, I want to ask you about that, because you did play for the Oilers uh, your final three years in the NHL, and obviously for some of the younger guys, they weren't even born when the Oilers dynasty was doing what they were doing. Maybe you had no idea who some of those guys were, but for you, seeing them in and around the rink must have been a pretty cool experience. Yeah, like I'll, well, I'll, I'll share a story. I remember one night I walked into a bar. I don't remember which one it was. Um, and it was playing pool was uh, Mac T, Simmer, and Kevin Lowe, Craig Simpson and, and Kevin Lowe. And I knew them a little bit, um, and I kind of knew the guy they were with, and like, hey, do you want to play pool with us? I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I was like 22 or 23, and I, I knew Kevin Lowe a little bit from, he used to summer in Kamloops, and he'd skate with us, uh, with the Blazers. And so I started playing pool with these guys. I'm like, oh my God, these are my idols. Like, you know, guys I grew up just, I can't believe I'm playing pool with these guys. And and uh, it was amazing, you know, and it was just such a neat experience. And what I took out of that was something I always try to carry with me is that you always treated the young guys coming up with the same amount of respect they showed me. Like, hey, how are you doing? What are you up to? You know, do you have a, do you have a girlfriend or what are you doing this summer? Like, and all that stuff, it's, it, it really, it, it kind of, that's the, the good hockey way when you're passing it down, like I'm talking about there, from one, from one generation of players to the next. One last question for you, Strutty. Just growing up as an Oilers fan in Edmonton, obviously, I'm sure you had jerseys and stuff like that. What was it like the first time you actually got to throw that jersey on for a real game, go out, play in front of the fans at, I guess it would have been Rexall at the time when you played there, but the Coliseum, just what was that experience like? Kind of a dream come true. Well, I was so excited. I, I, I don't think I slept. I remember we played, uh, and then I, I flew in. I forget. I think we played. I don't remember where we played. Maybe we just flew in I don't know we flew flew into Edmonton anyways and I was just jacked I was with the Islanders and um, you know it was so special to be able to just 
play for that team in front of my hometown and there must have been 50 people outside after and I was you know it was so nice just to like I made it right and I was able to play in that building I how many times did I eat the popcorn there uh, watching at the Coliseum you know and, and to now be a part of it be part of that group of people was pretty special and uh, you know I think it was a lot of hard work to get there and then you, you kind of get there and you're like okay well now I'm here but I want to be better uh, I want to have a bigger impact. So it was ironic. It was the last game I'd ever played for the Islanders. The next day I fly into Vancouver and get traded. So uh, <laughs> I guess maybe that was – I guess that was good luck. Uh, maybe I must have had a good game in uh, Edmonton that the Canucks trade for me the next day. And uh, how about when you played for the Oilers? Just getting to put on that sweater that you kind of grew up idolizing. Yeah, that, I mean, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I hadn't been nervous. I remember when I signed the Rangers, I wasn't really nervous the first game. And even with Chicago, I wasn't really that nervous. But I remember with Edmonton, I was. And, um, you know, you're, 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 you put it on because you, you, you're carrying with you, you're playing alongside the legends, like true legends of the game. Not just of the orders, but legends of the game. And, you know, I wasn't even close to them. But you wanted to, you wanted to honor them by giving your best effort. That's how I honored them. I, I couldn't honor them by scoring a lot of goals, uh, unless you counted practice and warm-up. But, you know, I was able to just honor them with, with good effort, an honest effort uh, every night. And, um you know, hopefully, you know, you, 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 that's the way you could do it. Uh, you know, we, we didn't have the most success, but, um, you know, my, my three years with orders was something I always tra- cherish. And, you know, to be a part now of that alumni um, is pretty special. And, 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 you know, seeing and interacting with these guys at different times is, is, is pretty special. Strutty, my last question for you. Was there a Stanley Cup that stood out out of the five? I've kind of been asking the people we've had on, Dr. Randy Gregg, Jim Matheson, we'll get to low tide. But for some of them, it's it's that last one doing it without Gretzky because, you know, just people thought that might have been the end of the dynasty. For you, which one stands out the most? The last one. I think when Gretzky left and, and Messi rallied troops and got him, there it was just... It was incredible. Now, I'm a big Messier fan, so I'm going to say that I think when he won with the Rangers a few years later was amazing as well. Um, but, you know, did did anyone really think the Oilers could win without uh, Gretzky? Um, I think Messier did, and, and some of those other guys in that room did as well. And when they pulled that out, my God, Connor, it was just uh, it was amazing and special at, at the same time. You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Use promo code THPN at signup for exclusive offers. Excellent stuff from Jason Strudwick. Born and raised in the city of champions, grew up watching those guys play, and then later on in his career, lucky enough to don the sweater himself, go out there, play in the Coliseum, and meet a bunch of the players he probably could have gone into it a little bit more. He got to play with Marc Messier. That was his idol. I've got to think that had to be one of the coolest things about his hockey career. But we really appreciate Strud's hopping on. And I think he made a really good point. That last Stanley Cup for the diehard Oilers fans that saw it all. That one's got to be just a little bit more. I mean, you're doing it without Wayne Gretzky. It was such a big deal when he was traded to the LA Kings. I'm sure everyone's seen the ESPN documentary, King's Ransom. They did a really good talking about how it all happened. And I'm sure for a lot of Oilers fans, you probably thought that was it. No more Stanley Cups. Wayne's going to go to LA and find a way to win them all. But that Oilers team in 1990 bounced back, found a way to do it, and really speaks to the culture that they had in their room. It wasn't just a two-player team. You know, they, they did it with a new crop of players and found a way to win. Had to be rewarding for the fan base, for the players, and Oilers fans all around the world. Great way to cap off an outstanding decade 
And speaking of fans, we're going to bring someone in now who was a fan in the 80s. He, of course, now works on TSN 1260 Sports Radio in Edmonton. He writes for The Athletic, covering the Edmonton Oilers. And Al, first things first, thank you so much for doing this today. I really do appreciate it. And, you know, getting to have these conversations with Jim Matheson, with Dr. Randy Gregg, Jason Strudwick, I've had to do a little bit of research and try to learn about this team. And the one thing that really surprised me, you know, going back to the WHA days and, you know, making the jump to the NHL, this team, it's outstanding the young talent that they had. The Hockey Hall of Famers and Gretzky, Messier, Curry, Paul Coffey, Grant Fuhr, Kevin Lowe, like when they got into the NHL in the first couple of years, these guys were 20, 21, 22, just so young and so talented. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, there were the WHA Oilers before the NHL Oilers, and right at the end of the WHA, the final year, uh, they got to the final. They weren't a very good WHA team. They were, you could say they were middling. But right at the end of the 78-79 season, they were in the final against the Winnipeg Jets, and the Jets uh, won the Avco Trophy. But the Oilers were really good, and they were strong. They had a young Wayne Gretzky. I, I think uh, he was already on a line with Callaghan and, and uh, Blair McDonald. So a few things were already, um, you know, established. But they, they two things happened to the Oilers. Number one, they they made it a um, a prerequisite of getting entry into the NHL that Wayne Gretzky was going to stay. And I still think, and, and I could be wrong, but I still think one of the reasons that happened was the NHL simply didn't know how good Wayne Gretzky was. You know, they, they, they poo-pooed the WHA. Uh, they put the league down. They, they treated it, you know, basically like it, it was non-existent. So I'm not sure how many scouts saw Gretzky, uh, NHL scouts. And then on top of that, Barry Fraser had three drafts in a row, 79, 80, and 81. In 79, he picked up Kevin Lowe, uh, Mark Messier, and Glenn Anderson. And they also made a trade that got them Dave Semenko. So they got like four forwards out of the first draft. And then in 80, they got Paul Coffey and Andy Moog. Uh, and, and in 81, they got Yari Curry. Um, or 80, I guess, in the end, they got Yari Curry. And, and in 81, they got Grant Fuhrer. Uh, Asa Tikkanen came along, uh, Steve Smith. They were, by 83, by the 83-84 season, they would lose the final. But anybody who watched them and saw the enormous amount of talent that they had, it, it, like, it's hard to describe in modern terms because it's like they had McDavid, Dreisaitl, on line one, and then pretty close to McDavid Dreisaitl on line two, and then they had a great offensive defenseman in Coffee. Lowe was a really uh, a strong uh, defender. They had two great young goaltenders. They were just loaded. They just were loaded. And and leading the way was Gretzky, who was, you know, he was just so good. It was it was it was freaky when when he went scored ninety two goals and two hundred and twelve points. I, I remember watching going to a game with my dad, and, and we were just shaking our heads the whole time. We were just like, what is this guy? He was so far ahead of everybody. He thought the game at a different level. And, and in a way, him being so good uh, propelled everybody else. They, I think they were, because they had to practice against Gretzky, they just became so much better because that was their, their normal in practice was probably better and more difficult than playing against, say, the Vancouver Canucks. So when you go back to those first four years of the Oilers' existence in the NHL, uh, I mean, the progression was there, right? I know they lost in the first round, then they lost in the second round, maybe a bit of a step back. 
uh, third season where they lose in the first round once again. But then they make that jump to the Stanley Cup Finals where they would lose to the Islanders. But when you're watching this team and all these guys get together and, and you know the chemistry they're building, was it kind of like it's almost just inevitable? This team will win a Stanley Cup. They're too good not to. Yeah, I, I think almost immediately, certainly by by the time, because you know, Connor, the the you never know until you know, right? And and Wayne Gretzky, they didn't give him the Calder Trophy, but they should have. In seventy nine eighty, he tied for the scoring championship with Marcel Dion, and and right away, you know, like his first year, he did that. Well, he's gonna he's gonna improve from there, and so you kind of knew, and then. Uh, uh, Mark Messi, I think he scored like eleven or twelve goals as a rookie, and he was a, a you know, he, he wasn't the player he would become, but he was just he was just the boss when he was on the ice, even as a young man. And and Curry was was so smooth, such a great two way player. Anderson was a kamikaze. They they just came in waves, and and you know, I think Glenn Sather's thing was he tried to. Uh, you know, he, he tried to build around those guys with veterans like Stan Weir and Doug Hicks. And I don't know if you've ever read the Peter Zosky books, but what what those guys did, like Hicks was, he sort of taught them how to, you know, act on the road, how to dress, how to do different things. And and Weir was, was uh, kind of a mentor for the centers because he could win face-offs and he had a little more experience. So, what they tried to do in the first couple of years, I think, is just immerse these guys in the league and and show them that that you know they could win in the the National Hockey League. By the time they lost to L.A., uh, which was I guess '82, um, my years are mixed up a little bit. They lost to L.A. in the playoffs. That was a real downer. Like that one really hurt. And I think it fueled them because they were they were very confident, and you could say they were arrogant and, and be correct. But they were just rolling over teams, Connor. Like the the amount of goals they would score. I remember there used to be a, a Wednesday night game, and I worked. The game would start at seven thirty, and I worked. Uh, I got off at eight o'clock. My house was like ten minutes away, townhouse I shared with my roommate, and he and I had a we had a standing bet. Uh, that one of us would say the Otis will score three goals before I get home, and and you'd go over and under. And you know, if you went over, chances are you, even though it only one period, it would have elapsed. You probably had a, a good chance to win the money. Like they were that good. It was regular season orders during that period were. It was just a tune-up. It's like how many how many goals can you score? How many hat tricks you can score? There's a famous game where. Uh, they were down badly to Vancouver in Vancouver after two periods, like 5-1 or something. And Sather went into the, the locker room, and he said, um, you know, guys, you can win this game. That's how good you are. If you really wanted to, if you really played hard, if you really back-checked, you can win. And they did. And, and like that's what they were doing to teams. So it was inevitable it was always going to happen. It took a little while, and they did have to add some veterans. Like Ken Linsman came in, and he was rock solid. Uh, and and they, you know, they they moved some things around a little bit. But really, the team that would win um, in '84 was was pretty much here by '80 '81. Was there ever a time, you know, you're watching a game and you think, okay, they're losing? so-and-so to nothing. Maybe they're going to lose this game because they had that firepower, you know, 
I have to imagine, you know, scoring four or five in a period wasn't impossible. Like, there was almost no lead that was insurmountable. Yeah, it's true. And usually, if they lost, they, they you know, they shot themselves in the foot. They'd take uh, dumb penalties. That's what happened in 82. Gary Unger, who was a veteran, took a just a, a stunningly bad penalty, uh, and it cost them badly uh, in a game they had to have. And so, you know, they, they were... They were young. You know, they were talented. They knew they were talented. They had swagger, and they could do all that. But sometimes they would get in their own way, and, and, and often that was why they lost. They just simply were, were, you know, just overconfident on a night. But they were, I mean, my God, they were fun to watch. And they had, like, they, they did have a checking line, and they were pretty good. And their, their defensemen were, were solid, too. Uh, but they got a little more structure when Muckler came along, and by... 86-87, which was coming up on seven or eight years after they all got together, they were, I think they were the more, the most formidable team. They they made some moves in the offseason. Uh, they got um, uh, Kent Nilsson, uh, Rutzelein, and they were, they were formidable always, but in 86-87, they were, they were just fantastic. That might be the best team I ever saw. Now, Al, I know at the time you weren't working in the sports media side of things. Uh, I think you were one of the best top 40 hosts in the city, and I, I've heard about your run-ins with the players as they'd come into the CFRN building to do John Short. But what was a game like for you as a fan at Northlands Coliseum? Because, I mean, I, I can talk about my stories there, and the games I went to a lot of times, the, the team wasn't always the strongest, but, you know, you might have a couple of uh, the Northlands pop, the crack beers, as they call them, and you're always going to have a good time. It was always fun, even if the team lost back in the 80s you go to a game you had to just be expecting a, a big win almost every time you went to a game well what you found you know i often would go with different people right like it was um you, you know you could get seats and so you'd say hey you want to go to the game you end up going to the game so it might be a co-worker or somebody you know and and if they hadn't seen a game before uh it was always fun because they'd notice maybe something that you took for granted like um paul coffee is a skater was just unbelievable. He was such a beautiful skater. So, you know, I'd be sitting and watching the game, and, and the person I'm next to would say, my God, Paul Coffey can skate. And I'd go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, he can. He's brilliant. Like, he was such a great skater. Or uh, they used to... They used to just hammer certain goalies. Murray Bannerman, I felt so bad for him. He was a really good goalie, and he'd get. I must have. I must have been to like seven or eight games where he would just get annihilated by the Oilers, and and so there were very specific things that would occur in the game. And often you'd go to a game and somebody would be on the verge of fifty goals, or Gretzky would be about to set a record. So there was always excitement going on. But it was there was. The whole city was was um, you know it was really growing. There was a lot of, of of good things happening, you know, for some of the decade anyway. Economically, really good. So it was a young and and uh, affluent town, city at that time, and the owner players were a part of that. So it was it was sort of a you know you'd you'd hear stories, you'd know that they'd be at David's or wherever, and it was it isn't like it is now, but it, it because the the players were more visible you you would see them more often off the ice but it was um it it was a it was a pretty cool time to be an Oilers fan in Edmonton and then when I worked with 
uh, at CFRN and, and got to talk to John Short and meet his guests. We're often either from the Edmonton Elks, obviously not called the Elks at that time, but they were, they were football players in town and then the Oilers as well. You get to know them a little bit. And I, I was always amazed at, like, you know, Andy Moog was like a great goalie. But he was so short. I still don't know how he could play NHL hockey, being as as small like in stature as he was. He was not a big man. But they were they were all great guys, and they, as players, I think they they kind of grew up together here. And and what killed it was money. They were all the NHL was paying more money. The other uh, teams wanted to grab the talent that was on the orders and. Uh, you know, Peter Pockington is not remembered fondly now, but he did try to keep that group together as long as he could. And Sather worked like a dog to keep them together as long as he could. Uh, and it, it, you know, I mean, they won five Stanley Cups. I think they did pretty well. <laughs> I'd say so, too. Uh, Al, when you look back at that team, obviously, uh, like I said, the Hall of Famers on this team obviously are going to always stand out. And uh, that's just kind of the way it goes. But as a fan for you during the 80s, was there any unsung heroes that you were always uh, a big fan of and maybe? you know, didn't get the credit they could have deserved. Oh, I think so. Yeah, Lee Fogelin would be one. I, I think uh, Fogelin was famous because he had played in the NHL from 74, 75. And so um, he was a guy all of us sort of, you know, knew about and had seen on TV, and he was pretty famous. But he was a heart and soul guy. And and I think anybody from that era would mention Fogelin. Uh, there, there were players who would come into... Uh, uh, town, or they'd be a part of a uh, like a big trade. I remember Mark Napier uh, was was part of the the really good Oilers teams, and he was outstanding. Ken Linsman, as I mentioned, um, Craig McTavish was a really good player. Uh, I remember. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I uh, Norm Lacombe came to the Oilers from from Buffalo, and um, his he got there. He told me this story. He got there. And they said, you're playing with Messier and Anderson. And in the early games he played with Messier and Anderson, he noticed that they would they'd do this thing where it's almost like Messier would skate like the wind to center, and he'd just leave the puck in the center ice dot, and he'd crisscross with Anderson. It would be coming the opposite way. And so Anderson would have a full head of steam, and he'd be going toward the opposition end, from the other side. So he'd come up the wing and he'd grab the puck and he'd go that way and Messier would curl and head into the zone and they'd, they often would score that way because there was so much speed and, and it's hard to, to defend it. So Lacombe told me that, <laughs> that he noticed this and he started to try to get in on the act and it ended one day when he damn near got killed by Anderson because he, he, he misplayed the puck and Anderson was coming, <laughs> was coming through no matter what. So there was... There was great stories like that, and and at that time it was, you know, you you could hear stories like that live and in real time. There was the media coverage wasn't like it was today. You had the the two newspapers. Uh, Rod was pretty close to the team. He would have lots of fun stories. John had worked for the team uh, at one time, so when he started his show, he had all kinds of contacts. His, his relationship with the owners wasn't always, you know, as smooth as as maybe both sides would want. But he he had great stories, and he, in a lot of ways, John was the most credible, I would say, uh, media guy at that time. But I I I will say that as a fan. Uh, of the Oilers, that decade from 79 when they entered the NHL to 90, say, one when they were 
still really good, but they didn't win the Stanley Cup. That that's probably as good as I've ever seen any team. They were fast, they were fun, they did learn how to play defense. They were tough. Kevin Lowe was, you know, unbelievably tough. They did a lot of really good things in the community. They they were very much about charity. Uh, Glenn and Ann Sather were were big proponents of that. Uh, there were always stories too, like um, you know. Uh, I, I'm just thrilled that, that uh, Joey Moss was just announced that he's going to have a school uh, named after him. He became part of that that story in a very cool way. It was it was a uh, it was really kind of a fairy tale. I, I it, it sort of um, it, it it was a sports story, but it was more than that in Edmonton. The, the owners and the mall were were kind of it. You know, I remember being in Seattle one day at a pizza joint. And this guy's making my pizza, and he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Edmonton. And he said, Gretzky in the mall, that's all I know. <laughs> and that's sort of what Edmonton was during that time. And, and, you know, it didn't end the way anybody wanted it to, but, you know, they, the league expanded money-wise so much. You could, you could not put that roster on the ice now with the, the salary cap. There's no, there's no way humanly possible you could do it. Al, I was actually at a Chargers-Raiders game in San Diego, and this would have been maybe 2005, so quite a while ago, and uh, I think we must have stood out because it was a game in December, and uh, me and my dad were both wearing shorts, and some guy actually kind of just walked past us and said, oh, where are you from? Like, you're, you're clearly not from California. So we explained to them that we're from Canada and Edmonton, and he had no idea what it was, and my dad just kind of looked at him and said, you know Wayne Gretzky? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Oilers. Okay, yeah, I know Edmonton. So, yeah, the Gretzky years, the dynasty, 100%. I mean, that put Edmonton on the map. I can't speak too much about them all, but uh, <laughs> I did see firsthand that the Oilers 100%. Uh, yeah, pe- people knew of Edmonton because of this team and this dynasty. Al, for you, favorite Stanley Cup. Uh, does one stand out? Was it the first one? Maybe the last one without Gretzky, the 87 one with the team just loaded? Like, which one is your favorite? Well, I would say 87, and I'll tell you why. Now, 84 was special because it was the first one, and 90 was special because it was a bonus. Nobody, nobody expected that. And 88 gets clouded because of, of what happened that summer. There was the big wedding, and then there was the big, people call it a trade, but it was a sale. But the, the 87, you have to understand, out of 86, Glenn Sathers basically said, to hell with this noise, we're going to win the Stanley Cup. And, and uh, Calgary, uh, you know, had been a nemesis to Edmonton. Like they were, Bob Johnson built that team to beat the Oilers. That was his goal. So um, Sather went out and got some more great players. Kent Nilsson, uh, I mentioned Rutzelainen, uh, and they were, like, they were just stupid good. They were absolutely loaded that year in 86-87. And still... They almost lost. It was Game Seven at old, what was called at that time Northlands, uh, and it was it was a tight game, and it was not out of reach. And late in the third period, Glenn Anderson came in over the line, and he sent a dart past Ron Hextall, and the, the Oilers. I think they went up three-one at that time, and that would have been everybody knew at that moment. But until that moment. Even in, you know, remember, 86, they'd lost on a, a kind of a fluky play. If they lose 87 game seven, you know, God knows what's going to happen here, Connor. So th- that game, uh, I, rem- I can still, rem- it sounds ridiculous, and it shows you how much 
I put too much importance on this team. <laughs> but I can still remember the feeling all that day of, of trepidation and nervousness. And when that puck went in the net, uh, it's probably the, 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 you know, the, the best release I've ever felt from a sport, sports event. That moment in time, I'll never forget it. It's crystallized in my mind. My, my uh, brother-in-law, who was a Flyers fan, was at the game. And I knew he was, and so I, <laughs> I had to contact him and and make him feel better because it was, it was like that was a hell of a team. People forget about the Flyers of the '80s. That was a hell of a team, and they and they damn near beat the the Dynasty Oilers. But for me, that was the the best team, the best script, the best moment, and Anderson put it all away. It was brilliant. This conversation uh, makes me want to find a copy of the old Boys on the Bus. VHS. Did you ever? Oh, yeah. Did you ever watch that? All. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's. It, it's. You know. It's funny because the 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 personalities are like Semenko was a big personality and uh, Mark Messier was a big personality. I don't know if you've read uh, his book or, as I mentioned earlier, the Zosky book, but they were. You know, it, it's funny. People forget. Like Glenn Sather was not so much. He was born in '43, I think. So he would have been about 15 years older than a lot of these guys. And so it wasn't like he was old man, like Lou Lamorello kind of guy. He was, he was not that much older than they were. They were a little more sophisticated, had a little more life experience. But everything happened, everything that you see on the ice today in the NHL, it all happened in a blur. The 74, Fred Shero starts shortening shifts. Before that, Phil Esposito would have played three minutes on the ice. He would have gone through all kinds of wingers. Fred Shero comes in and says, everybody plays a 60-second or less shift. So immediately, the game speeds up, and everybody plays more intensely because they have to because you only got a 45-second shift. And all of those things that occur, the, the defensive uh, uh, work of the Russians, the great Russian coaches, it comes over, and instead of driving down the ice and shooting the puck uh, from from left wing coming in over the line, you're, you're now worried about possession and keeping the puck and passing it around and getting a good look and getting in front of somebody in front of the net. Then they change where the blue lines are and the size of the neutral zone, and that changes everything again. So the, the, the game you see now morphed in about a 10-year period, and, and that a lot of what happened with the 80s Oilers surrounded that. They, they, were, they were an amazing team. They really were. They, they just changed the game forever. They, the, there are rule changes uh, that occurred at that time to suppress offense, and it was because of the Oilers. They, they forced the league to, to suppress offense. That's how good they were. They were amazing. Al, that was a perfect way to wrap up this conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, I enjoyed this. Thank you, Connor. Just great stuff from Alan Mitchell of TSN 1260 and The Athletic. The way he finished it off there, I think that's a great way to wrap up this episode of Dynasty by Decade. The 1980s Edmonton Oilers, like he said, they changed the way the game is played. They were a lot of fun for me to go back and watch on the old highlight videos. Gretzky, Messier, Curry, Anderson, Paul Coffey. Some of the greatest to ever do it. And I really appreciate you tuning in to this episode of Dynasty by Decade. Brought to you by DraftKings. If you are signing up, make sure to use promo code THPN. 
That's promo code THPN at sign up on DraftKings. It's a lot of fun. You can have a lot of fun doing so. My name is Connor Halley. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who joined me today on this episode. Alan Mitchell of TSN 1260, former NHLer and product of Edmonton, Jason Strudwick. He grew up in the City of Champions watching those teams. He made the NHL and eventually wore the Oilers sweater, played at the Coliseum. Also, Dr. Randy Gregg, five-time Stanley Cup champion, another guy born in the city, and uh, an absolute pleasure to have a conversation with him. And, of course, Jim Matheson, the Hockey Hall of Famer. He's covered the Edmonton Oilers for over 40 years and uh, just one of the best guys out there. I really appreciate them all for hopping on and discussing the Edmonton Oilers of the 1980s. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did making it. It was an absolute pleasure for me. Tune in. Lots to come here on the Dynasty by Decade podcast series brought to you by DraftKings, of course. We're only in the 1980s. We just finished that up. In case you missed it, earlier on I did tell you there was the 1960s edition with the Toronto Maple Leafs. In the 1970s, we have episodes with the Montreal Canadiens as well as the Philadelphia Flyers. In the 80s, it's the New York Islanders and the far superior Edmonton Oilers. What's it going to be in the 90s? How about the 2000s? Could we see Colorado or maybe Detroit? Perhaps Chicago or L.A.? Spoiler alert, not really, because I don't know what's coming up. I'm waiting to find out what comes out next, just like you guys. Once again, I'm Connor Halley, the host of the Other Connor Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Thank you guys once again for tuning in. Take care. Take care.